During Beatles Week, an exhibition of art by Stuart Sutcliffe, arguably the fifth Beatle, is on display at the Victoria Gallery at the University of Liverpool. Had he not died tragically early, would he have become a global artist like Peter Blake and Klaus Wormann? I think one of the difficulties with assessing Stuart's life and work is that, of course, he died, he wasn't even 22, he died in 1962. And all we can say, really, is that he did create a very impressive body of work for someone so young. Um, when he died, he was working in abstract expressionism, like the picture we can see behind me. Which do you think influenced his art more, Liverpool or Hamburg? Well, his art sort of splits in two parts. Uh, I think in Liverpool he was trying to find some artistic language. And in the exhibition you can see his early training at the School of Art and then his early experiments with abstraction. By the time he's working in Hamburg, he's, he's taken abstraction as his main um, interest and he creates an important body of abstract canvases and a series of monotypes, which is a, a certain type of printmaking, uh, which is reasonably unusual and which he, he was very good at. Welcome this week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone back again. Yes, he is back again, and he will be back again at the beginning of next month. Back again, again. Thanks to Lonnie Pena and thanks to Marv. Right. Thank you, guys. And We need to get the rotation worked out, but everybody seems to be happy and everybody seems to get a little bit of time off, which lets them enjoy their lives. <laughs> Strange concept. Anyway, as you all know, last week was Ringo's big birthday celebration, you know, peace and love. 83 years old. Who'd have thought? Kind of amazing. He made a couple announcements. Uh, He is coming out with a series of three EPs. We knew that, but he tentatively gave us a release date of September for the first of these. And does this one have a theme? Not that he said. Uh, He mentioned that the second one will be a country one, which we have known. I mean, we known that he was working with T-Bone Burnett. He talked about it a little bit, but it is now confirmed that that's going to be the second one, and that's probably going to be March-ish of next year. T-Bone Burnett and Ringo Starr should be a fun listen. Both of them are much more old-school country than... Yeah, for sure. And then T-Bone is a big Beatles guy. That's kind of required for producers. (laughs) The third one, we have no release date on, but it seems that he spaces them out five or six months. So a likely date would be September, October of next year. And he has mentioned that it will be written and produced by Linda Perry. She gave him some songs. He said, I want these rocked up a little bit more. And so they're they're working on rocking them up a little bit more. So <laughs> he says this is going to be kind of a rock and roll EP. I see. <laughs> we need 50% more rock. <laughs> now that he can have people into the studio, into Rockabella West with him. <laughs> right. That makes it a little bit easier to work together. It's not just moving the files around. True. The second thing he mentioned is that the new Beatles track, 
new in quotes, is indeed on the horizon. And from his point of view, what was new was his drumming and Paul's bass. Right. Now that they've got it down, they're going to, you know, it's about time Paul learned how to play bass. Well, I'm a little bit surprised that there's no new Paul vocals on there. But, I mean, there may still be, and Ringo was just shorthanding it. Could be. I mean, it's possible he cut vocal tracks back when they first attempted the song, right? Oh, for sure. Under the assumption this is now and then, which they still haven't confirmed. I don't know why they are holding this information back. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's not like the title is going to make people say, oh, I know that song. I've heard that song on YouTube. I don't want to buy a Beatles version of that song. Well, uh, that's certainly possible. What Ringo mentioned, the same thing that we knew, that it's not an AI artificial John Lennon vocal, that they used AI, much like the Mal technology, to clean up John Lennon's vocal, and that they do have a George part that they had recorded way back when. So another reason to believe that it's now and then. Calm your fears, Beetle Peetles. <laughs> that's the scoop. Third thing... Ringo was on a podcast called Sing for Science, which is usually a pretty good music and science podcast. This one, well, not so much. Questionable, I understand. (laughs) David Lynch was part of it? Uh, David Lynch was not part of it, but the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation Uh, was the, quote, science, unquote, half of it. Today we'll be speaking with music icon and peace activist Ringo Starr. Ringo's career as a solo artist has produced 20 studio albums and 46 singles, including the 2019 song Send Love, Spread Peace. Ringo's commitment to the peace movement began in the 1960s, and continues to this day with everything he does, including a birthday tradition on which he invites anyone to post, say, or think peace and love at noon their local time. Also joining us is Bob Roth, renowned meditation teacher and CEO of the David Lynch Foundation. And he goes on and on and on. Ringo is kind of at the front and the back for maybe 10 to 12 minutes at the most of this 30-ish minute podcast, and this guy fills in the middle 20 minutes. 12 minutes may have been all Ringo had to give. Listen to the Ringo bits. When the guy starts talking, you can fast forward to like the last (laughs) five or six minutes where Ringo comes back at the end. The headmasters of many schools were saying the violence has gone down, you know, and that's what it took, meditation, a change of being, you know, love it. Over to you, Bob. (laughs) he is promoting something they are calling the maharishi effect (laughs) yeah the egoless guru is going to want this effect named after him (laughs) the claim as per usual is that if we can convince the whole world to meditate uh, it will put good vibes into the atmosphere and clean the air and stop war and stop terrorism and well The world will live as one, as one of the other Beatles once said. And don't forget to donate to the foundation. (laughs) They talk about this supposedly independent organization. You go and you look it up. Oh, gee, this is. And I want to thank you to hipping me to the uh, Global Union of Scientists for Peace. Headquartered at the Maharishi University in Iowa. Ah, Gee, that's (laughs) something. Right. Well, (laughs) it's the way politics works these days, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) As you had mentioned, it's also the way, you know, a certain political person did (laughs) the same thing. Found a fake university and make yourself look respectable by pushing as much, uh, well, questionable material out through it as you possibly can. Right. But then, as you know, I'm a skeptic when it comes to TM. I've heard enough of their promotional material and been approached enough by them that it's like, yeah, I get what's going on. (laughs) Right. And while the Krishnas are somewhat more vehement than I would like them to be, they are actually much more, this is actually all about peace and love. Right. But that's just my opinion. Well, you know, as we all can observe, there are a number of business models in the uh, religious world. So, TM is following one. 
Yeah, and if you go and you look up some of the news things that Maharishi did toward the end of his life, he kind of realized where the organization was going, but I'm not going to go there because, well, we've already ruined our shot at having Ringo on the show, I think. (laughs) I didn't even know that was on the agenda. (laughs) It was never off the table. We haven't quite done anything to make Paul upset at us. We're we're not going off against PETA. (laughs) Well, okay. I'll have to look look at my calendar now. The likelihood of Ringo appearing with us is probably less than a tenth of 1%, but (laughs) it may even be less than that now. (laughs) All right. So our topic for today, we're going to be talking about Stu Sutcliffe, particularly a pretty neat biography, which was originally aired on the BBC in 2005 called Stuart Sutcliffe, The Lost Beetle. Right. It's kind of funny that the point of this is what a great artist he was and not a beetle, that they have to promote it by going, he's the lost beetle. <laughs> well, and they keep going back to the beetle stuff. I, I would have liked more on the art in the middle there. <laughs> yes. There are some really cool things where they do show off Stewart's art, and he talks a little bit about painting in Liverpool and then painting again in Germany. They have an art teacher who is a legitimate professor of art, not like the guy on Sing for Science, but they don't even mention Eduardo Palazzi, who is really the man who got Stuart back into the art world in Hamburg. Right. As this goes on, there's a a variety of different things that come up about his time in Hamburg. The, The fact that they don't mention Eduardo is a small part of that. He's the one who really got on the scholarship. We do get a little bit from Astrid where she says that, oh, he got a scholarship. And this was something that they usually didn't do for non-German students. And for Beatle people, Palazzi is the one who did the artwork in the Red Rose Speedway book. Paul called him up and asked him all that vaguely pop art stuff in the Red Rose Speedway booklet. Right. All right. So it starts off with, A version of Love Me Do, a pretty authentic version of Love Me Do, but the band that's playing it is (laughs) an early Beatles tribute band called the Prellies. The Prellies, yeah. You'll know them by the fact that they play every song just a little bit faster. (laughs) Yeah, apparently they came to this production through Pete Best and Rogue Best and the Casbah, because they were one of the house bands at the Casbah at the time. Wow. So they had connections. But we don't actually hear that much new footage from Pete in this. One of the really great things is we get a lot of on-camera interviews from a lot of people, a lot of whom are no longer with us. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, Stuart was born, not born in Liverpool. He was born in Edinburgh, Scotland on the 23rd of June, 1940. They moved to Liverpool in the middle of the war. So I don't know, were, were the Sutcliffe's actually Scots? I don't think Millie was. His father, Charles, was a British naval officer. Okay, so he was just assigned up there. That is the story. And it's mentioned just very briefly later. We don't get a whole lot of mentions of Stuart's father. But it turns out that Charles Sutcliffe, after his tour of duty in the Navy, was off at sea for the majority of Stuart's life. So he and John shared something that way. Well, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and and that probably would have come up in conversation between the two boys. In here, they don't really talk too much about why John and Stuart would become such close friends. And it's like, well, there's something that ties them together. I mean, that's easily as strong a tie as the one that he would have with Paul later with both their mothers passing when they were teenagers. So where's your dad? We fought off to sea. Oh, mine too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The next thing we learn is that Stuart actually was a member of the church choir. He accomplished what Paul wanted to do, but didn't get to do. (laughs) And there's the root of the jealousy. (laughs) (laughs) And they spend a lot of time dancing around the jealousy. Yeah, right. (laughs) Other than Tony Sheridan, who kind of (laughs) just spills all the beans. But I think Tony's got... Some sort of axe grind. Millie was a school teacher, and yeah, as you mentioned, the Sutcliffe's moved to Liverpool in 1943. Stuart not only got his GCEs, but he got them early. 
because he was at the art school a whole year before John Lennon showed up. I can see where this Paul McCartney thing came from. It's just uh, Stu is is who Paul wanted to be. (laughs) (laughs) When he's talking about what it was like to be in the Beatles, Paul, that is, in his interview with Stanley Tucci and in his interview with Conan O'Brien, he goes off for all a good 30 seconds about how what was different about the Beatles was that they were so arty and studenty. And then Tucci asks him, well, did you actually go to art school? And Paul just kind of looks sheepish and goes, well, no, George and I went to the school next to the art school. I, it must have rubbed off on us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's kind of what you take away from this piece. Stu was a real influence on what the Beatles were. His style, his look. At one point in talking about assessing Stu's talent as a bass player, Klaus Vorman says he he was fine. And this comes from a guy who played on top albums in the world. I mean, Klaus Vorman could play bass. And he had what is probably one of the single most well-known bass solos ever, the, the whole introduction to You're So Vain. Right. Now, what... Sutcliffe was not was Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, who's become this legend as the bass player, was not Stu Sutcliffe. The sound of the group was different, but was it worse? Well, I mean, it's the same argument you can make about Pete Best. Exactly. Pete Best became decent, but he was not a Beatle. Yes. Getting off the subject entirely, there are people who would say that the fact that Pete Best just really laid into his bass drum, his kick drum. That was part of the sound of the Beatles. The so-called Adam beat. Right. But he could not do a fill to save his life. Any kind of fill. He's not even a good drummer. But what he did, he adapted it to the situation, just like Stu did. For sure. Okay, so we get Rod Murray here driving us around the art school and past the Institute and around the places where uh, he lived with Stu. And Pauline describes how uh, her mother actually encouraged Stu to leave the house at 16 years old. Right. Well, Miss Sutcliffe strikes me as kind of a, not a difficult mother, which would make her sound like she was angry. It's almost like Julia Lennon, though. You know, she has, I can uh, see Julia doing something similar. You know, Mimi, of course, was w- was not behind it at all. But Millie Sutcliffe sounds like a similar type of parent, where it's like, oh, I'm going to support this in whatever way I can, and I will find a way to make it sound respectable. Oh, so she made up her her asthma? <laughs> uh, not, not that she made it up, but we'll make that work. There's the reason why. Yeah. What they tell us in the documentary is that the two reasons she really supported 16-year-old Stuart going off and finding the studio is, A, he had the tendency even then to work all night long, and being a school teacher, both she and his sisters needed to be up early in the morning. So the two schedules clashed, and then she also apparently had asthma and was not particularly helped by there being paint and paint dust around all the time. So I know you're only 16, but go. Go live in (laughs) filth and squalor (laughs) with your other hood rats. Rod Murray takes us around to their first apartment, 9 Percy Street. You know, I've seen Rod Murray in interviews now and again, but there was something about this particular interview. There is a Lennon caricature of Rod Murray in the daily howl and it'll you go oh yeah exactly that's that guy (laughs) (laughs) yes so he pinned him anyway yes which is the thing about john's artistic talent he is not real precise but he's a very good caricaturist yes absolutely you know when he draws something you can tell exactly what it's supposed to be and who it's supposed to be right that leads us to a bit about gambier terrace they don't mention the Beatnik Horror News story, which you would think would have come up here. Right. And so the narrator comes on and says, when John moved in, a relationship began that would dominate the rest of Stuart's life. In relating the story, they talk about the girls would come to the flat a lot. And so it was kind of a party place. And 
He even goes into a story about how Stu would draw a portrait of his current girlfriend, but it never, never lasted. So it was a portrait where he could wide it out and then paint a picture of the next girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John and Stu and others clearly were popular and players and kind of well-known. I mean, what is John at this point? Maybe 17. Right. So the quarrymen are going. The whole first year, Paul and George would sneak through the door and they would play together during lunchtime at the art school. Right. Throughout this whole thing, we get quotes from various things that Stuart had written throughout his life. What we learn, if you go and look it up in the book, Stuart had started writing a surreal novel where the lead character is a thinly veiled composite of John and Stu. Right. Which Stu describes as uh, being an artist living in hard rooms in Puke Street. You know, again, it's very much the same sort of wordplay that John Lennon would put into his own writing. Yeah. Certainly influencing each other in the way they write, because you can see phrases in Stu's work that you go, that sounds like John. But what is particularly interesting, he describes this character as capricious, incalculable, and self-centered, yet at the same time, a loyal friend, a frustrated and misunderstood child, not given its due need of affection, who ends as a man without roots, in rebellion or bewilderment, almost embittered. Can you think of a better description of John Lennon, particularly at that time? No. The observations that Stewart was making, not only putting into his art, but putting into these things that he was writing. Rod Murray then goes in to tell us about Stu's acoustic guitar. So, I mean, he at least knew a bit of guitar before he went to go pick up the bass. Right. Because he had one, he played it a little bit, and that was yet another feature of the Gambier Terrace flat. Right. They've actually got a photo where partying is going on and one of their friends from the art school is just there strumming on this guitar. Playing an early version of Michelle. (laughs) No, it's not Paul, but (laughs) I would guess that Paul actually probably did play that guitar at some point in time. Yeah, I could see that. Rod Murray's comment. But it's nice to see this again. It's almost like a little, little shrine, like a coffin almost. That may be slightly too far on the nose, I think. <laughs> yeah, he also produces a bass guitar that apparently he was making. The way Rod Murray tells it now, do you want to believe it? Maybe, maybe not, was, oh, well, you know, one of you want to be the bass guitarist. We need one. <laughs> well, Stu had money from the painting that he could spend on the bass, and Rod Murray went off and started to make one. It reminded me a little bit of the Magic Alex <laughs> bass or guitar from Get Back. Although, looking at the carving, it's like, that that would have looked cool. I don't know how it would have played, but you know, you just can't whip out a guitar. And he had no clue about the electronics, so that would have been the real problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, he jokes, see, well, maybe I should finish it now. Right. Now, Alan Williams enters the story, our favorite squeaky little Welshman. I knew that they were from the art school. That was Stuart Sutcliffe and John Lennon. And they decorated the basement for me. Some of the paintings behind me now, some of them are still original paintings of Stuart and John. I didn't even know they had a group. John and Stuart approached me and said, Hey, Al, uh, when are you going to do something for us like? I said, well, there's no more decorating, lads. You know, you've done it. He said, no, we've got a group. I said, well, I didn't know that. I said, where do you play? He said, we play the art school every Saturday. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, what's the lineup? And it became obvious that they didn't have a drummer. And then we went through about three drummers before we settled for Pete Best. Sounding just like Alan William, tell it, telling the same stories. How the, there were multiple drummers and they settled on Pete and then off to Hamburg. Although he gets the story a little bit muddled here. I suppose if he was their manager, that he would feel like he was part of it. But it was interesting where he basically says that we decided on Pete. <laughs> he talks about the drive and the boat trip down to uh, Hamburg. And he has them playing right when they showed up, which, as we know, wasn't actually what happened. Right. They got there. They got into the Indra. They found somebody to open up the door for them, but the club was closed. 
We ended up in Hamburg at um, very late one night. We'd got the timing wrong. There was no one there to meet us, but we could find Hamburg off the map. But then trying to find St. Pauli, the little district, and Reaper Bombum, everyone knew. Oh, Reaper Bombum, yeah, it's this way. You're going to miss it. I'll keep it to other house. Okay. So we went down. Well, we found the street and the club, but it was all closed. But we were there with no hotel or anything, and it was now nighttime, yeah. So we managed to shake up someone from a neighbouring club or something. They, they found the guy and he opened the club and we slept the first night in the alcoves on the little red leather seats. There is a story that I wanted to point out was when, when they were coming over from England to Hamburg and they were loading everything up. Apparently his mother came down. His mother and his sisters. And never let Stuart know that they were there and watched, and his mother cried the whole time. That's why I was like, you know, she was a challenging woman. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. How could someone be incognito like that? (laughs) You know, it it was a reasonably wide open space. Even if they were staying away or moving off behind something, you had two relatively young little girls and an older woman crying. (laughs) You think someone might have noticed. Right. And it's just the idea that they didn't go, goodbye. Probably because Stu said, do not embarrass me. <laughs> John Lennon's here. It reminds me of the scene in Backbeat when they're off and Frida Kelly plays George's uh, mother and brings them scones. <laughs> right. So they arrive in Hamburg. They play at the end of We meet Horst Fosher, which Yeah. The claim is made that there was a stripper on stage. When they showed up, which we know is not the case, they did actually play behind strippers for a little while. They were playing by themselves much longer than that. But, I mean, it wasn't just one night, or was it? Do you have a better idea than I do? I thought that their stripper experience happened in Liverpool. It did. Okay, so... There was also a stripper at the end of for at least a little while. Right. They're trying to say here that it's just one night. Horst Fosher, his quote is... And this is the club. There was a stripper on stage and said, oh my God, because they'd all, John and Stuart and Paul had already played in a strip club in Liverpool. And they said, oh no, we haven't come to Hamburg to back a stripper, Alan, you know. So I said to her, Koshmi there, who owned it, he said, no, this is last night to a stripper. Tomorrow is rock and roll. Right. But even then it didn't last. It was a bad setup. There were tenants that lived above them and people were complaining. And so the whole idea of them playing there was a failed experiment by the club owner who's bruno koschmeider and horse foster does not like bruno right (laughs) every time he's in there he has something bad to say about bruno well by all accounts bruno was a thug (laughs) well like the foshers weren't well there are thugs and they're thugs i don't know (laughs) despite that they were still there playing for over a month before they got kicked up to the kaiser keller Right. Some of that time, I think it was more than one night, but I don't think it was more than a week. They were playing, not behind strippers, but strippers were doing their business in between the Beatles sets. That's the way I understand it. And that's the way to see the Beatles, really. If you had the time machine, that's one of the stops I would absolutely want to make, is to spend a day, not during the early part, but toward the end of their residency at the Indra. I would think at the Indra, they were still kind of a crappy band. You think it's not until the Kaiser Keller that they actually kind of... Yeah, it was that constant playing. And remember, was it during the seniors who like, do not send that band. They're terrible. (laughs) That's what Alan Williams says. So we we get another letter. What is noted is that he wrote the following to Susan Williams. I'm blue at this moment. Fed up with rocking and remembering rocking on a ferry with you one summer's day about 18 months ago. (laughs) Hamburg is little quality except the kind you would find on analysis of a test tube of sewer water. It's nothing but a vast amoral jungle. I called to find you flown. This bird has flown. (laughs) Yeah. So even at this point, he's saying that he's going to come back to art college in 1961 to continue his studies then. Right. Coming home around Christmas. But this is a personal escape, which I felt was necessary to free me from a lot of uneasiness. Are we talking about mom? Could be. He came to Hamburg to escape, because the next thing to talk about really is... Strippers, hookers, queers, transvestites, 
and this mixed <laughs> physicians and sailors and foreigners and, and tourists and it was a big melting pot in Hamburg. And that's where they got the first dose of gonorrhea. Yeah, that's something which, did we really need this, Alan Williams? I mean, <laughs> okay, it's funny, but still. <laughs> this is where we get horse saying more nasty things about Bruno, and now, of course, he deserves it. It's all about living behind the Bambi Kino and... For my opinion, was a cool. money was everything for him, and uh, uh, he treated the bands bad. place they stayed in was at the Bambi Kino. The Bambi Kino, this is cinema, which is a sort of soft porno movie, you would call it today. Cosmita put the bed in there and uh, there was no windows. You just had the light bulb. You had no wardrobe. You had no wash basin or anything. If they wanted to go and wash, they had to go to the men's toilet of the cinema. The description of it is a softcore porno theater. I don't know if that's quite right. I'd always heard that it was like war movies and musicals that they were showing at the Bambi Kino. It was cold. There was no heating, you know. And this is a winter in Germany. Paul and I sort of looked at one another and sort of grimaced, and it was like, well, let's get on with it. I remember Rory Storm and his group coming with Ringo to see us. They arrived a bit later and came and saw the group in residency, came, to, came around to see how the groups were living, and they were really shocked. Because they, they remembered, like, we, we, one of us had a Union Jack over us to keep warm. Rory and I, or the band, we were staying in one room in the German Siemens mission. And that was luxury. Mm. Absolute bloody luxury, because uh, before we got to the, to the club, the Kaiser Keller, uh, Howie Casey, sax player from Liverpool, also played a lot with Paul McCartney uh, later on, they were sleeping for a while in the back of the club. And we'll never forget when we arrived and they said, yes, you, you know, now this is where you live. <laughs> it was just like a couple of old settees and flags, Union Jacks, like they were your sheets. You know, I said, well, we don't this, we've got suits, we're leaving, blah, blah, blah. So that's when we went to this life of luxury in the German <laughs> Siemens mission. <laughs> we have a, a section of another letter where Stu talks about they sleep in a cinema and that the rain comes through the roof. And even then, what he wants to do is he wants to set up 10 cans and make them play a little tune as the water falls through and into the receptacles he's going to set up. Now we meet Tony Sheridan. Anytime we get to see Tony Sheridan makes me happy. You know, Tony just doesn't get enough credit for his role in the Beatles story. Yeah. For sure. He was not just the headliner at a much bigger and better playing club. He had been on TV in Britain as a rock and roller, and he was a heck of a guitarist. Right. He may still take a little bit too much credit, but we know that he's the one who would teach both George and Paul a number of things about playing the guitar. It wasn't Liverpool that made the Beatles. We have improved a thousand fold since our arrival, and Alan Williams tells us that there is no band in Liverpool to touch us. Our biggest numbers being What I Say, Tutti Fruity, Long Tall Sally, Lucille, Sweet Little Sixteen, Johnny Be Good, Three Steps to Heaven, and quite a few more. Do you know that? Song? I don't. We should look that up. Just follow steps to heaven, steps one, step one, you find. All the singers have lost their voices at one time or another, except Paul. At the moment, George is out of action, but hopes to be singing again soon. This is where they kind of, at least in terms of the documentary, they're using this as an introduction to the Xyz. Right. Let me interject here to say that Three Steps to Heaven was a song by Eddie Cochran, which was released after he died in the car crash, and it reached the top of the British charts. So, so th this is followed by uh, the usual sorts of tellings of 
Klaus came down and was knocked out by them. And he brought Astrid, although it would take her a little while to actually agree to come down and, and watch this man. But by the time she came down and saw them, she says she was knocked out completely. Again, followed by rather familiar stories, Klaus and the record cover he designed. Continuing with an excerpt from a letter that Stu wrote, which answers a question that we had earlier. My mind is filled with the letters I will shortly have to write, one to my mother and one to my father. This will be the difficult one, particularly as I have made no contact with him for over a year, and in view of my, what must seem to him, imbecile choice of coming to Hamburg. Anyway, I will cross those bridges when I come to them. He was concerned. We're back to the exes coming down and talking to them in yet another letter from Stu. Recently, I've become very popular with both girls and homosexuals who tell me I'm the sweetest, most beautiful boy. Imagine me, the one who had such a complex because I was small and thought I was ugly. It appears that people refer to me as the James Dean of Hamburg. I'm quite flattered. And this next to John and Paul, who were the Casanovas of Hamburg, <laughs> who were talking about, well, okay, you know, were they popular at the art school and getting girls around? And he got a taste of the rock star life in Hamburg. I mean, the girls were um, um, easy, shall we say? And in often cases, professional, but still. Yeah, I don't know that the Beatles' whole life in Hamburg were about prostitutes. It was a piece of it. Sure. You're living in the middle of the red light district, you know, and you're 17, 18, 19 years old. You're going to take advantage of that. Yes, but as people were coming around, there were people who were not professionals who were perfectly willing to take them to bed. Even the famous story about George, it turns out that she was a professional. Right. But, I mean, that was the crowds they were drawing, and that was the hours when the girls had time off. They wanted to go relax and get drinks, and it's like, ooh, he's cute. Okay. We get Tony Sheridan describing that Stuart was the bridge between the musicians and the artists. They kind of speed through the whole Xyz and the Beatles thing. Yeah, because this is kind of about Stu and, and Astrid. There are things about it that involve that group. Klaus is only mentioned really in relationship to how he was with Astrid and then later on that he had big ears that stuck out. <laughs> That's where the combing it over his both forehead and ears would be a thing because Astrid thought he was a very pretty young boy, but he had those ears. Right. Which a lot of people say about George as well, actually. <laughs> Some people are afflicted by that. <laughs> now, Tony Sheridan is not necessarily the best person to say this but it's a really interesting quote for stewart talent oozed out of him while john had to work really hard to show his talent yeah i like that and i get that i don't after that quote i put a whole series of question marks i don't see anything about john and his lifelong thing going back to his daily howl that he had to struggle to do work it oozed out of him too. It was just different. It was just a different kind of work, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, as we know, when John was tuned in, songs would just flow out of him. I mean, they were they were artists of a different caliber. But I was taking this as either painting or sculpture. That was not his native talent. He had some talent in there. I mean, you. Know, but the quote from Tony Sheridan is. <laughs> talent oozed out of stew while john had to work really hard and i'm thinking that's just tony sheridan's view of it and i don't think it really holds water because john was a very creative person his whole life this is followed by a section which i'm going to complain a little bit about it starts with astrid who says that john and stew were so close that other people say they must be homosexual then pauline answers that with other people write about it, and they claim that John told them they might have done, but that's as far as I go. I really don't see that it ever was a thing, honestly. Well, but what is she saying there? Other people write about it, and they claim that John told them. So is she going to call them a liar? She admits they were very close, and other people say that all the time. I mean, there's quite a few quotes about how close they were. And so 
in talking about what other people claim that John told them, she's like, they might have done, but that's as far as I go. I, you know, you know, it leaves me a little bit uncertain why Pauline is even bringing this up to a certain extent, even why this is a point that the documentary wants to make. There's much more important things here and the likelihood that there was ever really any kind of homosexual thing between John and Sue is pretty small to my mind. Well, it may be, but there's also the rumor of John and Brian Epstein. So you have two people to whom it has been attributed. So I think that's why the documentary deals with it because it is a thing. Now, is it true? Who knows? This is then followed by Tony Sheridan, who's, who does describe it as a love thing. And that I can see. They loved each other like brothers. Right. That's kind of the way I see their relationship. But does that necessarily make it sexual? No, it does not. It certainly does not. So, I mean, I have been very close with several men over my lifetime that I would call love, that I considered virtual brothers. I had sex with none of them. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get it. As Paul answers this, not in this documentary, but in many other places, you think John would have made a pass at me one of those times, don't you, dear? <laughs> and there's Paul's ego. Because, <laughs> because maybe John would look at Paul going, no way, mate. <laughs> not you. <laughs> Alan Williams ends that with, no, they were just good mates. British beat poet Royston Ellis had quite an impact on the Beatles after they met in Liverpool in May 1960. He's accredited with influencing the name change from Beatles with a double E to Beatles with an EA, as in beat. He's also accredited as the first person to introduce the Liverpool lads to naughty substances. Since they're going to talk about drugs, it would have been nice if they had mentioned the whole Benzedrine thing and John and Stu being under the enthrall of a clear homosexual talking about poetry and playing rock and roll behind a beat poet. Right. That, again, doesn't make its way in here. But I think that's kind of a crucial piece of this story that's missing from this documentary and maybe it's just because they wanted to center on Stu's letters and they don't have time for much else you know we'll tell the stories around what Stu is talking about in his letters right now that we come to a bunch of stuff which is really all kind of just put together in a big jumble it is neither chronologically correct nor do they really have that much to do with each other we start with Pauline with Yet another rumor, what she says is that we actually quote other people who give a graphic account of John kicking Stuart, and that eventually leading to the aneurysm that Stuart would have. We didn't 100% know it then, but now we can pretty definitively say that it was something congenital. The AVM, okay. which led to the bleeding in his head, was just because of the way the veins in his head were. <laughs> right. They would have broken down eventually anyway. I don't know if we're going to jump around some, but there's a point where a doctor looked at stuff and basically diagnosed it as him having an artistic temperament. That doctor was a British doctor who had not actually seen Stu. He'd just seen the x-rays and the diagnosis from the German doctor. Right. But what kind of diagnosis is that? No, it's just he's... Uh... An artistic temperament. Well, and we know that Stu was enjoying not just the prelude in, but the various other drugs that were available to them. And, you know, that couldn't have helped his artistic temperament either. We get a bunch of stories, which I guess you could just kind of call Beatles being naughty. Horse talks about the pissing on nun story. And we know that wasn't until 61. Right. And then they somehow turned that into the 1960 deportation story. <laughs> right. right. Burning a condom and then Paul being arrested by the police. A, a memory which still sticks with Paul to this day. Yeah. And you know, we get some of Klaus's line drawings of those things. And that is a really good depiction of what things must have been like. Right. So that then takes us to the little interregnum where they were back in Liverpool waiting for George to turn 18. Stu 
came back with Astrid and Stu's mother was not very happy that he was here with this German girl. There's that challenging mom. It wasn't that long after the war, I guess. 15 years. Well, I mean, this is another instance where the fact that her husband was a naval officer fighting the Germans, some of that must have rubbed off on her. Right. I just think, wow, how rude. Your son's bringing this woman that he very clearly is in love with. Right. So what was Stu supposed to do in reaction to this? Was he supposed to go, oh, mummy, I'm sorry, I'll get rid of the nasty Nazi. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I don't know. Challenging. (laughs) And so we see a slightly nicer side of Alan Williams. They had no place to take. They weren't going to take her over to Mendips. <laughs> so he's turned up at Alan Williams' place, and uh, they took her in for the extent of the time that she was there on that visit. Right. It took all of one night. It was at one o'clock in the morning, and it's like I'm not going to take this anymore. And so they just had to go find some place for her to stay. And was Billy in the back bedroom wailing? Was she tossing nasty insults at Astrid? Or how did that manifest itself to drive someone from your house? In an evening. (laughs) If nothing else, it's probably just a get out or get the hell out. Right. You're not taking my son. Well, I hope she said, I've got him, you know. (laughs) That is then turned around into Astrid was something of a mother figure, is how Klaus describes her, to the visiting bands, which, interesting in light of Yoko Ono. (laughs) Right. The mother figure. Yeah, it's interesting the way she was used, how, you know, people would say, well, Astrid thinks you should do this, or Astrid likes that, or something. And that that had a, an influence on a variety of musicians, apparently. She was the queen bee. They had kind of mentioned her photography when she was talking about taking pictures of Stuart, but, I mean, she was working as a professional photographer at this point. She was an assistant, and then she was also doing some photography, very high-end, high-class photography at that time, which was really... certainly probably would have helped the bands to gravitate toward her. What I find interesting about that is this is another thing that the Beatles started for all these other bands. They're the ones who discovered the Xyz and Astrid in particular, and all the other Liverpool bands, when they went to Germany, oh, we've got to look her up. Right. So Tony Sheridan, after describing her as the muse for everyone, says that everyone loved her. And he goes off on a version of the uh, Paul and Stu fighting story on stage. Yeah, you know, he doesn't like Paul, does he? He does say that Paul would fight like a chick. What does that mean? Nails and scratching rather than taking your fist out and punching. I see. So Paul at 18 fights very emotionally and does not display the manly art of fisticuffs. (laughs) and why is paul's mode of fighting described and not Stu's? we know a little bit more than what they tell in this documentary about paul's feelings for astrid she liked paul a little bit less because of the way he treated Stu. it didn't go so far as to make her hate him or want to exclude him but he's my boyfriend this is the man i'm going to marry and I don't like the way you're treating him. Well, at this point, as we've seen, Stu is two years older than Paul. which kind of makes him 20 when Paul was 18. So he was the more mature guy. You know, Paul was just a younger kid to Astrid. Because I think Astrid was a slightly older than Stu. I don't think that what they're saying here is really right. I mean, Paul may have had a crush on her, but I, from everything I've read... He wanted to be friends with Astrid, but that wasn't anything that he was going after. Now, John may have wanted something there. Perhaps, but, you know, if Astrid was the style setter, then I could see how Paul would want to be around the person who is the main influencer. Especially after the stories they've been telling about her being essentially the queen bee for the Liverpool musicians who were coming over. Right. She's the center of attention, and Paul as we know, wants to be the center of attention at all times. Into the haircuts, I do find it interesting that Klaus said that he never really liked that haircut. (laughs) 
Right. Which he wore the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent. But Astrid got me to do it eventually. Stuart said, oh, I would love to have this haircut. So because his hair was long, it was just all combed back. So I just got the brill cream out, washed it and cut it for him. Astrid cut Stuart's hair in the shape of a, a mop head. And when he came up, when he turned up that night with a strange haircut, the others just fell about the stage laughing and taking the mickey out of him. Another, you know, rather, rather well-worn story. Uh, that was the night that he put on the collarless jacket and, oh, have you got your mom's clothes on? Right. You know, now that we know the true story of how the whole Beatle haircut came about and, and Jürgen Vollmer's uh, influence and all that, it's funny to go back and hear early Beatle interviews when George says, well, you know, I came out of the baths in Hamburg and it just kind of dried that way. For <laughs> sure. A little bit on Stu's artwork, late abstract expressionist. Well, I like it. I'm still not quite sure I get Stu's artwork, but I'm less of an abstract expressionist kind of guy, I think. Right. Well, it's about shape and color and I get it. The thing that really amazed me was the way that Astrid's family embraced Stuart pretty quickly. Astrid's mother clearly fell in love. I mean, not that way, but fell in love with Stuart as a son pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, maybe she saw, okay, my daughter is really falling for this guy. This is the love of her life. But still, it's, it's kind of the same thing that we would later talk about when they invited Paul to go live on Wimpole Street. Like, yes. That was fast. Yes. You know, maybe that's a European thing that we we don't get. But yeah, I bet she invited him to live at the place so that he could get out of the Bambi. And then he asked, could he use the attic as a studio? And she said, absolutely. And then she went and bought all that he needed, paints and canvases. Paints and canvases and everything right. else. And then, and then Astrid's cousin makes an easel for him. I mean, it's just he got embraced very quickly in that family for sure. The quote from Donald Cuspet, the art professor. I would argue that what you have in, uh, in Stuart was an effort to make contact with his primary creativity, and that is visceral, and that comes out as, quote, raw emotion, raw expression. Such painting is really psychosomatic. It's body, mind together. That's the fantastic thing about abstract expressionism, that there's no separation. Something to think about. Yeah. There are certain paintings that he did that are really moody. There were paintings that I saw that I wasn't really familiar with, and that was really cool, particularly the way they let you see them. There were some that were very dark and moody. And then he would do stuff in other colors, kind of using the same symbols. Pauline mentions that earlier towards the beginning. She says, what is it that she really misses about not being able to talk to Stu is that she always enjoyed him explaining the paintings to her. What does this mean? You know, what are these symbols? Why are you using silver here when there's red everywhere else? And I'm pretty sure Stu would have said, oh, please give me a break. I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Why are you asking me these questions about art? <laughs> um, did you like the artwork? I like a lot of it. Uh, it's particularly as we go down the rabbit hole right you know as we move through Stu's illness it becomes much more uncomfortable to look at it's not unpleasant but it's uncomfortable in looking at it the other night the first thing i thought of was vincent van gogh where his paintings got a little bit more crazed as his mind went <laughs> yeah you can definitely tell to a certain extent, what was going on in Stu's head. And actually, the representation of it in Backbeat is something that kind of sticks with me. Is They show what it might have been like to see him just there throwing this paint against the canvas and having something come out of it. Yeah, although I don't really see that the way he painted was throwing color at a canvas because it's much more detailed than that. And it clearly is textured i mean i'd love to see it in person 
I've always wanted a complete or at least quasi-complete collection, but that's something that's never actually toured. Right. They then use that. Brian comes into the scene. There are some interesting descriptions from the narrator. Brian took the provocative downbeat look into something neater and sweeter, packaging Scouse insolence as jolly mischief, vaguely haunted by Stewart's gentle soul. I like that description. Yeah. I can truly see that in this, that Stuart and John were kindred spirits in the way they looked at art in general. They weren't doing the same thing, but there's a common attitude there. And I think I feel more in touch with the depth of grief that John felt when this man passed. Well, for sure. That was a very tragic time for John Lennon. Yes. April of 62. So we're only, only, you know, about five years since his mother had passed. Right. It just seems in a way so profound that it made me think of John considering Paul kind of his uh, number two. You'll be the guy because number one died. And then they went on and created this amazing thing. It may have been one and a half and one and a half because Stu, while he loved music, was not going to be the... Musical equivalent of John Lennon. Oh, right. It, you know, it's kind of back to what we were saying about John had to work at it. At the art, he did have to work at it. And he admired and took a lot from what probably discussions that he had with Stu about painting and about the business of doing things f- for putting on display. Yeah. You know, we talk about Brian and Brian turning them around. It may well have been Stu that was part of developing the showmanship that the Beatles would take. Absolutely. I think, in a way, one of the words we're dancing around is Stu had a certain charisma that isn't really discussed other than the fact that when they went to Germany, the the Exes were like, Stu was the guy. And I think John felt it as well. And perhaps Paul was jealous of it. Well, it's entirely possible. The admiration that Paul had for John or George had for John is the same admiration that John had for Stu. Yeah, I would say that's an accurate assessment. As this story must, we then travel down Stuart's illness and his attempt to work through the illness. Yeah, it's kind of sad, you know, that his pain grew and grew and, you know, he passed out several times and... And they, they had to cart him home from school. Yeah, um... I mean, this was killing him. Literally. And at this point, the documentary tells about that doctor who said, in his opinion, Stu is a young man with an artistic temperament. (laughs) The German doctors at least started with saying it's migraines, and then he continued to get thinner and continued to get sicker and continued to have these headaches. And so in response to a letter from his mother, it's like, you know, here's everything. And his mother then scheduled an appointment with a British specialist. You know, we can't trust those Germans. <laughs> right. And the specialist would look at all the medical material, which came from the German doctors. And, you know, oh, yeah, it's just a nervous young man with an artistic temperament. <laughs> yeah. And his name was Dr. Robert. <laughs> that would then express itself in his relationship with Astrid. People suffer and often they're shocked. I don't think Astrid is completely happy. I seem to have given her the impression that she is not suitably equipped to live with me. So, I mean, you know, he's dying, but he's still concerned about his girlfriend, his fiance. They had an epic love, for sure. That then leads to, well, Stu's dying in the attic. I mean, we've seen those pictures before, but it is kind of amazing that Astrid would take that picture of Stu in the attic, the half-lit picture. That is so much what would become the with the Beatles cover. Yeah. John made her made her take a picture of him in that exact same position after Stu passed. But it, I just find it interesting that they clearly showed that photograph to Robert Freeman. And it's like, we want this on the cover. Right. This is true. I thought that the idea of John... T- asking or telling Astrid to take his picture the exact same way of Stu, how that impacted her. But certainly 
that was the inspiration for the Meet the Beatles cover. It's the whole half-lit thing. Yeah. And then, you know, it's really kind of a strange and sad coincidence that Pauline would discover that her brother was dead by overhearing a phone call. (laughs) That her mother made to a friend. You know, she had to come home and it's like, why? Her brother's dead. And, you know, she apparently overheard that. And so that's a rough way to learn. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Challenging mother. (laughs) (laughs) Not just that, the fact that she would be on the same plane as Brian and George going over to Hamburg. Now, granted, there may have only been one flight a day, but still pretty coincidental. Yeah. You'd be probably right, though. It's one flight per day. It was at this moment during the interview with Astrid that I took note that in relating the story, she used both Epstein and Epstein. It may well be that she used both of them for him. Yeah. We know which one Brian preferred, and we know that he changed it, but she also knew Brian's family, don't forget. Right. So, you know, it could be that she would go back and forth between them. Yeah. George found out on the plane, and there were John, Paul, and Pete to pick up George and Brian. Astrid comes up because she's going to meet the plane with Stu's mother on it, and she has to tell them the news. Her quote is that Pete burst out in tears. Paul was just standing there holding me, and John John just freaked out laughing until the tears came. Although Pauline once again uses this to mention uh, that she thinks that this may have been love and guilt combined, because she really wants to assign some blame to John Lennon for Stewart's death. Yeah, could be. Anyway, this then rolls out through the end of the story. Rod Murray tells us that he was engaged at the time and Stuart agreed to be his best man. That's something that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of odd. I mean, I guess it was like one of those things that they agreed at some point. Again, Stu was clearly a letter writer. Right. They must have exchanged letters, and that's probably was something that came. Oh, oh, I, I met a girl too. I'm going to marry her. It's like, oh, well, I'll be your best man. Yeah. Astrid goes on about even though she's been married twice, that she still keeps a, a photo of Stuart by her bedside. Yeah, it was real sweet. And and then you know, basically, her last line in the film is exactly how I feel. She said, I, "I'm sad. There's hardly a piece of film or anything to show what Stuart was like." That this outstanding person was a blessing. But it is weird. Even with the Beatles, he had his back turned half the time. Now he's the guy on the corner of the Sergeant Pepper photo to most people. There are so many great photos of Stu throughout this documentary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. More than I've seen. And, you know, I have all three of Pauline's books, and there's still more photos in here than there were in the books. Right. The tragic end, which I suppose has to come, they try and make it a little bit more upbeat. The fact that we know where all this goes and the fact that he was such an influence, why are we sitting here talking about him 61 years after he passed? Well, there's why. Right. Now we just have to figure out why we're still talking about Pete Shotton. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, Pete Shotton was was a very rich fella in, (laughs) in Britain. John Lennon bought him a supermarket, which he then turned into a chain and, you know, There's lots of reasons to, to be talking about Pete Shotton, although I kind of don't think anybody's going to be making an hour-long documentary on Pete Shotton anytime soon. No, probably not. That is Stuart Sutcliffe, The Lost Beetle. It is available uh, on video, and it is also available complete on YouTube. Yeah, it's worth your time. It was good. Very definitely worth the time to watch it. We've done enough of these now that I think we can say that this is probably, while it's incomplete and while it uh, muddles the story in places, emotionally, this is probably one of the better documentaries we've had so far. Things I hadn't seen before, information I hadn't heard, viewpoints. So as we get more and more stuff out there, it's harder to hit all those points. So they did a good job, I thought. I just kind of wish they'd been able to put them into their boxes and get their chronology a little bit better because things get messed up in several places. Yeah. But again, it doesn't matter to us that much because we know it. But if you're just someone who's saying, oh, who's this Stu Sutcliffe guy? Oh, he was someone who was in the Beatles. The view which comes out, at least chronologically, is not quite right. Right. But anyway. All right. Very good. 
So let's see. We are planning for the first week in August. We're going to be talking about the guitars on the White Album, particularly George's, but uh, really all of the Beatles guitars on the White Album because kind of after Pepper and Revolver, the White Album was their return to the guitar as their main instrument. Right. And joining us will be Darren Murphy, who, if you don't know who that man is, you're listening to the wrong show. <laughs> and he's someone you can Google. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, so look for John Stone and Darren Murphy and myself at the beginning of next month. Yeah. Next week, more with Marv. All right. Listen in. Bye. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim. Feast or Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. How would you describe these paintings? I know some have said that they are moody and even aggressive. Um, well, abstract expressionism is about trying to convey an emotion, um, which is, makes it particularly difficult, I suppose, to understand or come to terms with. Um, and it's very much about what the individual feels when they're standing in front of it. I tend not to find them aggressive um, in that way, but I can see some people might. And do you think Liverpool does enough to keep his memory alive? Well, uh, until very recently, the only work uh, in a public collection anywhere in the world belonged to the Walker Art Gallery, um, who had an oil painting uh, which they were given by the family in 1964, and which is in this exhibition. They've lent it to us very kindly. We now have a number of works by him as well in our collection. The Walkers. Uh, painting is nearly always on display so you can nearly always see it there and a lot of people do come especially to Liverpool to see that painting and we'll try and show our works outside this exhibition when this is closed. I tell you one thing there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.